there, Spark. Thank you to our worship team for continuing to lead us and guide us. And we just are going to continue our study um, and our worship of God through the study of the text and our continuation in our Ephesians series. We want to acknowledge the fact that many of us in this moment might have felt like we could really manage this COVID thing and sort of we had the adrenaline meeting us in the moment. We found our new normal in early March and then April started to feel a little bit more of aware and now May we're just maybe have hit a wall. So so we understand and appreciate all of that. And in light of our new realities, we wanna let you know that Spark is continuing to evaluate and think through all sorts of creative ways to be Spark and continue to keep our Christian practices. So we're, we're looking at some new distance uh, baptisms as possibilities. And we are also continuing um, different ways of uh, communion, right? So we'll, con- we'll, we'll keep thinking creatively. Yeah. Obviously, we're joking. No. <laughs> um, however, <laughs> we do appreciate <laughs> all of the creativity of all the pastors and all the congregants trying to figure out and reconnect with church in this time. And I actually think that this is a wonderful setting for the letter to the Ephesians yeah. because they're having to do the same thing for a variety of reasons. So let's read through Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 um, as we start through our time together. Yeah. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that's the end of our reading. The title of our sermon today is One Hope. So we're going to kind of dive into that and look at each verse bit by bit and have a little conversation um, and some interaction with all of you on how we want to how we want to think through this letter. So the first part, Ephesians chapter one, chapter four, beginning in verse one, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So chapter four, beginning verse one, Ephesians sort of functioning a little bit like a hinge. Um, And we're kind of seeing a connection between the first part of the letter and the second part of the letter. Commentators have suggested that this verse one is a pivotal verse connecting those two portions, the first three chapters and the last three. And this is sort of unlocking the structure going forward. Yeah, when you read these passages, um, I'm so sorry this is going to sound so cheesy, but it's one of those kind of preacher pastory things that when you see a therefore, you have to ask the question, what is that therefore, therefore? <laughs> I know it's it's so horrible. And it's one of those cheesy sayings that I really don't like because it sounds so cheesy, but unfortunately it happens to be true. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts with this therefore. And So what we'd like to do very briefly is just remind you that we've actually gone through three chapters or three main segments and a whole bunch of different teachings uh, up to this particular point of the exhortation that Paul is going to give. I started us off by mentioning God is our context and about how the author of Ephesians is really trying to continually keep our eyes open to a much bigger context than just the circumstances that are right in front of us. And that's what is that context, the context that while Hellenism, when Danielle was talking about the movement of the Greco-Roman Empire was happening, um, God was adopting us as children um, and that heaven and earth were actually coming together. 
Um, Danielle also talked about there's this resurrection that happens within the midst of time and space and in history, and that transforms the, everything of how we be, what we believe and how we even conceive of the world. Um, we talked about what it means to be alive, and that while there's some people that claim to be alive by certain uh, factors or certain ways in which they govern or assess what it means to have power and, uh, and position, it was the, the Jesus movement flipped all that around and said that actually people who are seemingly on the lower rung, those are the people that are truly alive. And even if you were dead, so John writes about, you will still be alive. Paul or John? John. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Um, and then Omer mentioned uh, the the teaching of one humanity out of two, that all these barriers that we create, the socioeconomic and racial and ethnic barriers that we create are being absolutely demolished as a result of this truth, of, of this aliveness, mm-hmm. of this oneness that is happening. Um, Pastor Mark mentioned that we now are responsible carriers of this good news Deliverers, to yeah. the world and the entire context, the full context of all of that is the Beatles song that Danielle mentioned last week, which is love, love, love. Love is the ultimate driver and the ultimate engine for this entire uh, movement. So that's when we get to what we're going to get to today, which is Mm -hmm. a little bit more exhortative, meaning there's some moral guidelines. Please be patient. Please be kind. Please be humble with one another. Uh, We want to remember that it's there because there was an entire setup of the argument of the book of Ephesians, or we should say the letter to the Ephesians of all of that that was was happening. Right, because what's coming is after we've now had this conversation about who the church is, all of the amazing inheritance that we get as part of this church, what our privileged position is as followers of Jesus, and all of that, we're now going to explore the weighty responsibilities of what it means then, how we have to behave, how we have to live differently, and that'll be what's coming in the coming chapters. Paul's going to exhort us to live worthy And he's going to emphasize the character and effort required in order to exemplify that type of life and living. So this brings us to the next portion of our verse. Like, I urge you then, Paul says, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So let's talk a little bit about (laughs) calling and what that means and how that works in our lives and how we discuss that. So so Danielle and I actually have a little bit of an argument over this calling. Not really an argument. Well, it's it's a little bit of a, it's a thing. No, no, I would say it's like a are we different, yeah, different <laughs> experience in what it has meant for us. Well, why don't you start with how you've understood calling? Because I think this is important. I think a lot of our folks and a lot of people, when they hear the word calling, um, there, there's a little bit of both of us in, right, in there. Yeah, so absolutely. why don't you share? Well, don't you think that typically when we talk about, like, are you called or we've sung those songs? I sung that song growing up like... Um, Lord, like the wait, like the calling song of like who will who will go and I'll send send me Lord right. and all that. So the idea of calling, I think, often has a prophetic connotation to it. Like Jonah was called to the Ninevites, yeah. and and Isaiah was called here, and Ezekiel was called there. So we think, okay, well, that might happen to me someday, and it will be this incredibly crazy experience. We're going to hear a big voice. It'll be skywriting. It's going to be very specific. It might be something terrible and awful. I think there's sort of always the idea that being called to something might be just super hard. Like the Jonah calling is like, I'm going to have to do the thing I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, 
I think there's been a lot of misconceptions about call and about what that what happens when you're called to something. Well, I also remember growing up, it being very very specific. Am I called to this college or am I called to that college? Mm. Is God calling me to marry this person or is God <laughs> calling me to marry that person? Is God calling me to take this parking spot or that parking spot? And um, I, I guess all of these examples we could go on and on. I, I'm sure many of you have actually experienced something very similar and you feel like this calling uh, has this very specified weight to it of if you go in this direction and follow, then you're following a God's call. If you go in this direction, then you have violated somehow God's call on your life. And what we'd like to communicate to you is that that is not what these gospel writers, what these biblical writers are talking about. Um, Our the what the wrestling that we have had and that uh, I sometimes still have because it's so stuck in my brain is very Americanized individualized call that there is a very specified yeah. direct line that God has me follow and bear and dare I not uh, deviate from whatever that line is right and it has to be you specifically like your greatness your opportunities are tied up and your capacity to hear or understand the call or whether or not God's like tapped you on right. the shoulder for that call and all of that and I think what's a little challenging is that sometimes there are places and experiences we might have where we have sensed a very distinct and direct call that did apply yes. in a very individualistic way. When I was 13, I felt very called to be a pastor and not like a um, pastor of a big mega church, but just a pastor of a small church, um, which I now have my dream job and I'm super happy about that. But that, <laughs> <laughs> but that calling has driven me. So I remember early on in our marriage, Kevin would get some job opportunity or something and I would say, well, I don't know. Do you feel called? And they would be like, I, I don't know, right? Like, I don't, I feel called to put food on the table and pay some bills. And I felt like, and I would be like, yeah, but do you feel called? Because I had had that experience early on that continued to drive me. But even with that very more unique and clear experience that happened at a young age, that has been my, for me personally, I have deviated from it. I have felt different ways about it at different times. Um, just before Spark started, when I sort of was lamenting that it could even ever occur, I was looking for jobs on like the FBI website. <laughs> I was like, the international, I was like, well, maybe I have to do anything else other than the thing I'm doing because it wasn't working. So I think in that, we've had a lot of conversations about what that work, how that works. But both of us have arrived to a larger point of view, which is that so much bigger. in the Bible and in the Gospels, that it's actually not about us. And it's yeah. a collective call for the unity of all believers in Christ. We, together as the church, have a calling and a vocation. And that is? To continue to do everything that we've talked about even up to this point that you are part of a huge community, a huge movement to push forward one thing, the good news, what we call the gospel, um, that it is our responsibility, very similar to what Pastor Mark was sharing, that we are carriers of this good news. The fallacy, the challenge that many of us fall into because of our Americanized, Western, individualized context is that calling is only individual, which means that God has a very specified direction Now, again, we want to acknowledge that there is that wrestling there. So we're not denying that that may be a wonderful expression. What Paul and the writers of these scriptures are talking about is this universal call to the good news that upended Western civilization, that totally transformed the way 
in which people thought about themselves and the world. That is what we are called to. That the, the church is called to something far bigger than the individualized experiences that we all have within the context of the church. That is yeah. our call. And if you're an individual who's felt often like, I, I just want to feel called, well, guess what? You are. You are called just like everybody else, to proclaim and to deliver the good news. And I think when we talk about that gospel good news, we often think, okay, then that means I am called to convert people. I'm called to present the gospel in these four spiritual laws and give this. So that's what you're telling me. Of course, I'm called to do that. And I can do that in all of these various situations in my individualistic life, whether I'm a doctor or I work in the restaurant business or whatever it is. But it's actually bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. And it's all the things, as Kevin just mentioned, we've been talking to this point, the good news that Caesar is not God, that there is redemption and salvation, that there is a hope to be found. And this is where Paul is going to continue to go in this letter. Okay. Immediately after the use of this word calling, um, there is this exhortation in verse two, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with each other in love. And what I'd like to share is some, we've got a couple perspectives. The first perspective is that feels very much like a moral a checklist. You have to be humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. And many of us have come from a place where moral exhortations is the kind of the distillation, say the summation of what it means to be a a Christian. But remember, there's a larger context. What has previously happened here? There was adoption into the family. There was a breaking down of barriers between socioeconomic, ethnic, racial, national, national, yeah. and gender boundaries. And what seems to be happening here is that the community of Jesus is expanding to a whole bunch of different types of people, and they're all coming together in one church, which means that all sorts of different people are having to learn how to live together under this new reality. And I don't know about you, but when different people from different backgrounds and different cultures come together under one unified, beautiful, brilliant message of love, it can sometimes get challenging. Some different people do things a different way. Uh, Can I, I don't know, um, can I share with you just one very, very simple example, but it's the most pernicious example, and we like to talk about things that are really challenging, which is music within the context of the church. We have talked extensively about racial and ethnic um, reconciliation and justice, but I will tell you that it is a continual challenge push forward to figure out how to bring everybody together when there's a diverse set of feelings and experiences that people have with music and art. And I don't know about you, but throughout the church's experience, uh, throughout the church's history, uh, figuring out how to navigate those waters has been one of the most difficult and challenging challenges because I don't like that kind of music, or I do like that kind of music, or that's really how what makes me feel connected with God or doesn't. Yeah. And when I hear this phrase, be completely humble and gentle, be patient and bearing with one another in love, that is just one small example in my mind of thousands of opportunities where we get to exemplify this kind of patience, this kind of humility, this kind of gentleness with one another. And let me tell you something, when we do that and we bear with one another, we endure with one another through those challenges, 
I will tell you, we become better people as a result of that. We become transformed as a result of learning to live with one another with that humility and with that gentleness and with that patience. So that's one aspect of the story. There seems to be a second aspect of it, which is this. Humility? You want me to be humble? And this seems to be the backdrop for why Paul is urging us to do this. In the Greco-Roman world, humility was not even thought of. I mean, it it wouldn't, even if it was to be thought of, it would have been looked down on really poorly. Not a virtue at all. Not the way the world is supposed to work. This is not in accordance with Roman qualities. In fact, the reason why the crucifixion was part of their arsenal for establishing their empire was not humility, but humiliation. The whole point is that if you have been humiliated, then you are on a lower rung and then you actually have no value. You are a lesser human being. But what happens in this Jesus movement is that all of that ideology, all that philosophy or the way of thinking about humility is completely upended and overturned. And in fact... Many would argue that even the concept of humility itself entered in through the person and the work of Jesus and this early Christian movement. In the Greco-Roman world, to lay down your life is to be defeated. In the Jesus movement, to lay down your life is to love. Um, And to be victorious. And to be victorious. yeah. So, this is a much longer message, but... If any of you or if any of us or if you see anything in the world that values service in any form, whether that be servant Mm -hmm. leadership, to serve your community or even to serve your family, if you find humility to be of a value or an ethic in business, um, in work, in relationships, to lay down your life for Mm -hmm. another, you owe that to the Jesus movement. You owe this ethic to that particular way. Yeah, the Jesus movement is... is is the place where we can sort of historians and scholars look and say this is when humility became a virtue, right? That Jesus humbled himself unto death, even unto death on a cross, that he laid down his life. And even in the teachings of Jesus, we hear this regularly, like, you know, people of this world are fighting over right and left. It is not to be so with you. You are to lay down your life and serve one another. I mean, this is the the entire image of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. That this is... Makes no sense. Right. It doesn't make sense because this is perceived in the world as not a power play. And yet, this is the place where we see the virtue of humility and where Jesus lays down all of that. It's not about power ties and power knots and power suits and all these kind of things that we would see in the world about holding it over and wielding it over one another. But in the Jesus movement, we are to be humble and consider others better than ourselves. And that is hard, but that shouldn't be confused with being a doormat. That's not the same as that. It's just that we are sitting and leaning in and listening. And that even when something grates upon us, we're like, oh, man, that that preference that you have is not my preference or that practice that you have is not my practice. Um, and we can disagree for the sake of heaven, which is important, but we do so with love yeah. and we do so with patience and with gentleness. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk about this before, but one of the images of humility from the definition of the word is to actually lower yourself. Mm-hmm. And we often interpret that, as Danielle was saying, like throwing yourself down and, and being adorned at people um, can walk all over you, essentially, that you become a victim or, or whatever. 
But to lower yourself means to equal the playing field, that the value that humans have is actually equal. It's, it's to combat the idea that because I have a certain level of education, because I'm a certain class, because I'm a certain gender, I now have a higher value than mm-hmm. the other people. To lower yourself is to, in many ways, bring up yes, all yeah. of the bad thinking that you've had about the varieties of people and to say, that person who is not my gender, not my ethnicity, not my culture, not my race, is of equal value, brings equal contribution to the community. And that's what's happening in this early Christian movement. You've got people from all over the world now joining in this Christian movement. Some people still holding on to that Greco-Roman idea of, but I was the first one, or I happen to be um, as... um, Paul will even argue in some places, I happen to be a Pharisee of a Pharisees. I happen to be in a very rich line, I religious line. I was baptized by John. You was, were baptized by Peter. I follow I was, right, right. I follow Pastor right. Danielle, not Pastor Kevin. I follow Pastor this Kevin. Church, <laughs> right, exactly. This church. Right. right. And so the, the idea of humility, <laughs> sorry about that. But the idea of humility is to start to recognize this next yeah. move, which is there is one body. There is one church, there is one faith, there's one spirit, there's one Lord, there's one baptism, one God and Father of all. Not two, but one. And this is the this is that great push of this. And this is the only way we can do what Paul's asking us to do. We can only unify if we feel like the other person is for us. If we feel like the other person, even if we're wrong, has come to us in gentleness and humility and in love, bearing with us, patient with us in that process. I mean, the only way that we can do those love goggles we were talking about last week with the how wide, how high, how deep his love really is, all of those things, it's really just possible when we feel like the other person is gently listening. I don't know about you, but when somebody comes at me trying to convince me to change or convince me of their gospel and good news and those kinds of things, I am immediately defensive and ready to sort of put up and and meet the force. But if the person comes gently and ready to listen and love and understand, it's so very different, right? Even from big giant things like the vocation and calling we are all brought to and spreading this good news, how it comes with gentleness and humility and not with power and argument and force. But also then from the little things of how you work out things in your own household or with a coworker or your children or your spouse, right? And to try to come at it with an understanding, right? I prefer all of the cupboards closed while cooking in the kitchen. Kevin prefers all of the cupboards open while cooking in the kitchen. And by simply listening, I can understand. It's because he's going right back to that cupboard. And he will... I think we need to bar Danielle from using this example ever again. I think you've used this. (laughs) No, it's my favorite one. But I think we're... We're un- we try to understand each other, whereas 20 years ago in marriage, it was more of like a please just do it my way and more of a meeting with force. But now I'm like, it's, it's well, well, let's some patience with it. Let, it's not just please do it my way. Uh, let's let's be more forceful with it. My way is the better way. <laughs> my way is the only way. My way, because I know it to be right and to be right. true, will then mean your way is lesser. Right. Um, and of course, we're being a little bit silly with the example but it is fundamentally true that that is the impulse of humanity. Right. I see it my way. This is my culture. This is my faith. This is my spirituality. And Paul is arguing, no, it's not. 
There is one God, one yeah. spirit, one baptism, one Lord. We are all together. We are family. Which yeah. means that that person who doesn't do it your way brings something to the table and you become a better person for it. And I'll also just note that because this is what Paul is teaching us and aiming us towards, that this is really also an echo of the prayer of Jesus in the garden from the Gospel of John, that we would be one, then that does mean that the big issues that might be popping in your head right now, like, yeah, but what about issues of justice? Like, what about when somebody clearly is wrong because they're continuing to uphold systemic racism and white supremacy and homophobia or Islamophobia? or What what do we do with those things? I'm not going to consider that person or that way or that thought other better than myself well the point that that paul is making here is that when we are one we don't have those barriers we are not permitted to hold those things over one another and we are perceiving one another as equal and as the same you know it's it's a different like those things that that have been allowed to continue to be persistent even within the church um i think that's been the heartbreak for so many of us for such a long time um how do we live with the church where racism is being propped up, where it's an excuse, where white supremacy is there? How do we decolonize our faith? Paul is doing that in this process. And the oneness that Paul is asking us to bring forth does not subsume us all into the majority culture or a majority experience or a white experience or, you know, instead it is bringing us all into the person of Jesus and the good news of the gospel and the Father. And this is where we get our hope from, yeah. right? This is the one hope that we have. And I think we'd like to just leave you with this particular note. Remember this long trajectory of what Paul is doing in Ephesians. There's this huge setup of the long story about who God is adopting all of us, advancing love in this world, breaking down all of those barriers, the responsibility that we all have to carry this good news into the world. But then as people come into the community and are drawn into us, we are to lay down our lives for one another, to learn humility and gentleness and patience and to bear with one another. So the oneness of this beautiful movement of Jesus can be advanced. And he mentions one hope in the middle of this list. He mentions that there is one hope. So all these other things are one things. And then there's this strong sense of hope that exists. You were called to this one hope. And one of the contexts within this is that Paul is writing all of this while he is in jail. While it does not seem and does not appear as if there's any hope on the horizon. Things just from a purely calculated standpoint, taking a look at your context, does not seem like it's going to get any better. And in fact, it doesn't. Paul is not freed. Ultimately, Paul meets a grisly end at the powers of the Roman Empire and and suffers and dies as a result of his proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. So his hope is not coming from earthly circumstances. It's not coming from an anticipation or the myth of progress. It's not coming from a place where he feels like things will get better someday because people will learn or people will accept. Things are dark. Things will continue to be dark. In fact, they will get worse for the followers of Jesus for a long time before they'll get any better. But Paul's hope is found because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus, because what has been done on the cross, because we have been redeemed and saved, because of 
the justice that will come in the world that is to come, even as it's not here yet. I think it's just hard to feel hopeful in the midst of circumstances that can, like, but where is their hope? We don't have hope in our leaders, or we don't have hope um, in circumstances that are in front of us, or it doesn't seem like anything's going to change. So can I even feel hopeful right now? Paul's like, yeah, you can feel hopeful. We are called to this one hope. Even if you're imprisoned, even if your leaders are terrible, even if the Roman Empire is breathing down your neck, you can still have hope because of the promises we have in Christ that have been demonstrated from this letter till this moment. There is, even in the midst of the uncertainty of your circumstance, a truth that can never be denied, a faith that continues on, that pushes forward. And the more we together as a community lean into that together, patiently with one another, the more we get to experience that love and that unity um, in the midst of the circumstances. I think that's part of the context that we often forget about our early Christian movement and the Jesus movement is that the circumstances in which they were in were very grisly, very um, dark, but they pushed this forward and they formulated a way to be human that ultimately began to influence the wider world, but in that particular moment and in that context did not ultimately initially change the immediate context. I mean, I think for people who have done Garden to Garden and other Bible studies, we've talked a lot about what if when you were, if you were amongst the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and in year 398, you died, right? You don't believe that God is a God that is faithful to God's covenant promises or that there's any hope on the horizon. Or even if you're in year 400, Moses is going to be 40 years old before he realizes he's a Hebrew. Then he has to go sojourn in the desert for another 40 years before he realizes he's supposed to go help people get freed. And at this point, I'm like, can we hurry it up, right? right? So the idea that God that there is hope to be found in a God who is faithful and a Christ who conquers death, right, on the cross, that there's hope to be found whether or not you personally are experiencing it in that moment. And so we have these examples throughout our entire Bible and throughout our church's history. And I think particularly even in the history of um, times of severe oppression of the American church for the black church in America, where there was still slavery, where that was being sanctioned by white churches, while there was still slavery or, or denial of civil rights, we can look to brothers and sisters of faith of the years past for, to the grandmothers and the f- grandfathers and the great, great, greats throughout our entire biblical story and our church history of how did they sustain hope in Christ simply because of who Jesus is, but not necessarily because of their own circumstances or any promise that those circumstances were going to change anytime soon. Yeah. They sustained that hope because of the belief in a world, to, a justice in a world to come because in a belief of the resurrection, which is one of Spark's core values, and because of their consistent pursuit of love and bearing with one another in that love and trying to find ways to express that in that world, that Jesus is God and is on the throne in spite of the powers that we might see around us flailing about or the power of a virus in our lives, that Jesus is still Lord. And that's where the hope comes from. We'd like to lead you in a time of communion. Um, It is an amazing expression of that hope. The declaration of who Jesus is, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And every time we take communion together, we are declaring once again that we are entering into our calling, 
that we are entering into and embracing this identity as one church under one God, one Father, one Spirit, one baptism, one Lord, um, and the declaration of this one hope. So if you have your elements with you, we encourage you to grab them and participate in the sacrament together as we celebrate um, the Lord's communion. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, um, may you be blessed today by the community of this uh, church um, and by the wider church community, by the oneness that God has called us all into, um, and by the hope that is exemplified through us continually leaning into this way. And wherever you might happen to be as we take communion together, please know that every single person is welcome at this table as we sing and celebrate communion together. Amen.